it is Killer Casting. It is I, your host, Lisa Zambetti, casting director, and with me, my wingman, Dean Laffin. Hey, Dean. Hey, Lisa. How you doing? We're getting down to Tintax here at Fargo S5. Yeah. About there. I know. We're almost there. So as we're getting closer and closer, and presumably the pressure is ratcheting up and up and up, you have a lot of expectations on the, what is it, the penultimate episode before this, this, the finale? This, yep. The, or, or to put it in Lorraine's terms, at least we are now on the one-yard line. That's right. We, we just need not to fumble the ball on the one-yard line. Yeah, and there's a lot of expectations. They have a lot of balls in the air, a lot of things that they have to bring home. Just So before we get into it, if you had to sort of describe your reaction to this episode or describe it, what would you say? Set up. A little bit of resolution, but it's mainly set up for 10. I thought that it resolved some issues, but mainly... It was about setting up for 10, and I think 10 is going to be a whammy. Okay. My reaction was... <laughs> you didn't <laughs> terribly enthusiastic about my summer, but yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, because I felt like it was diffuse and confused. That mm. was my reaction. And it was... I'm trying to think of the word. What's the opposite of concentrated? I, I mean... Dispersed or disparate or diluted? Like when something... Diluted. Yes, that's the word I was looking for. Diluted. It felt very diluted to me. And we'll we'll get mm. into why. But and as I was waiting for you to log on, Dean, I was thinking back to season four. See how she threw me under the bus there, listeners? Just like that. She was ready and I wasn't. But to be truthful, that is pretty consistent. I have that's to okay. It's fine. But I was sitting here and I was quickly looking back at season four on the wiki, just looking back how as the season went on, things got more and more tense between the two families and all the people that you're coming to know so well. And as they're getting more tight in each other's orbits and maybe because it was in the city setting and maybe there's something about this landscape that is making things so spread out, but it just feels like things should have been getting more intense. It keeps telling you it's getting more intense, right? The FBI is coming, the militias are coming, all these people are coming together. And yet it felt just barren to me and just not dramatic at all and missed opportunities for drama and incomprehensible bumbles by certain characters that I'm, I just, did not understand. But why don't we go ahead and launch into the beginning? Yeah. So just before we do, I want to point out that this episode was directed by Thomas Bazooka, almost mm-hmm. like Bazooka. He co-wrote last the last episode with Noah. Noah wrote this one solo and Thomas is directing this one and also directs the next one, which makes total sense because I see him almost like Godfather 1 and 2. They're, they're, the, same, they're the same thing, but just split. And so, yeah, c- cut to the... What are they called? Ice fishing. The hut. Yeah. Ice fishing. None of that doesn't happen in it. There is no ice right. in Australia like that, but I know it's a thing. So we have yeah. this, again, this great landscaper on this lake and there's a little ice fishing hut on top of a lake, which always makes me nervous because I'm like, mm. how is that not crashing through the surface? Even though I know it's like many feet of ice and he has a fire. In- oh. I know that for people who live in that part of the U.S., they this is like part of the course they understand until yeah, the great like, until the spring and the great crack and the great right. unfreezing yeah I, I the same thing as obviously it's local knowledge but how as a local do you know when the ice is thick enough or how do you know when it gets thin enough not to do that so in there we have poor gator who's being held hostage and trying to talk his way out of it and we have ole who at first we think is just warming his hands by the fire in his own inimitable way just kind of sitting there in his own spell of his own making And Gator is just desperately trying and still fronting like he's the big man. I'm going to offer you drugs. I'm going to offer you weapons, offer you women. And obviously he's in over his head. He has no idea who he's dealing with here. And Ole is sort of biblical splaining back to him an eye for an (laughs) eye. And we see that he's actually been heating a very pointy looking knife, which can't be good. And so something is going to be extracted in one way or another. Yeah. it's So just pulling back a little bit about Ole. Yes, he's a gun for hire. Yes, he's a dangerous dude. He's a hitman, but he's one of the few male characters in this season. He's got a consistent moral compass. Now, as whack as that compass is, he's like, given a situation, how he's going to react because that's how he rolls, right? So he's got a code and he doesn't break it. But as you said, Gator's never really got, he's never read the tea leaves on Ole. So he's there, he's still cocky and he's still, bro, what do you want? You want oxy, you want coke, you want mess, you want titties. And then 
And when he does an interim, he goes, oh, he says, a rabbit caught in the trap will squeal or something mm -hmm. weird like that. And Gator says, speak English, bro. And he's still kind of cocky. It's, he yeah. hasn't realized the danger he's in because, and he hasn't the whole fucking series. But anyway, of course, all I couldn't give two shits about that. And to most people, an eye for an eye is just an expression, but with Ole, it's not. This is where I feel like the character has been let down in some ways, because at this point, we should be feeling a real sense of dread. We don't want him to get killed, you know? You mean Gator? Yeah, we don't. Hello? No, not at all, because he's being such a douche and because it's just because he, he hasn't dropped the mask. You know, there's something about him that is so irritating. It's I don't really mm. feel anything for him. I feel more for Ole. Ole looks like he's in more pain and having to mm. deliver this. He has this burden. Yes. Righteousness that he's got to set. Anyway, so I, I didn't uh, really uh, feel I, anything about that. Yeah, I, I did read something that said Gator is hard to like, but he's not hard to pity. And I, that's certainly how I feel. You know, it's like for, the, for those people who want the re Gator Redemption story, I don't think you're going to get it. I did read something, and I want to give credit to Tom Phillip at Yahoo Entertainment, who said, quote, I couldn't have watched Sproul and Kiri do an entire bottle episode in that little <laughs> shack. I've said it plenty, but here it is again. They have been absolutely stellar in their supporting roles in a season headlined by A-tier actors, unquote. How, how true is that? They have mm -hmm. absolutely smashed everything they've been in. I never saw Stranger Things, so I, I've never seen Kiri before mm -hmm. or anything. Yeah. Like, he's just an immense. I'm like, I've got to see more of this guy. He's brilliant. Yeah, I don't think I'd want to see a bottle episode with these two because they are limited as they've been drawn. Ole is a very limited. He's not going to grow. He's not going to change. Mm. And apparently Gator is also stunted. He's not going to change. He's not going to have any big revelations or breakthroughs or anything like that. At least it doesn't seem like he is. But anyway, are we ready to go to the compound? We are, but of course we get that no music in Fargo ever appears by accident. Yeah. And so the transition from a gator having his eyes taken out by a hot blade is Sam Cooke's classic Jesus paid the debt. We then cut to Doc trying to escape her hut, so take it away, Lise. Yeah, so we go back to this. Now, I do love the composition of this landscape, uh, the barrenness and the snowiness of the ranch and the decrepit, the big barn, the big gray barn that's kind of falling apart because it almost looks like it has a face. It almost looks like it has eyes, and it's kind of looking over what's going on. And then she's in the little red, tiny little cabin shack, still desperately trying to get out, right? MacGyver away out as usual. Yeah, I mean, it almost looks like she's going to chop her own foot off to, to get <laughs> out of it, which would have been an interesting turn. But anyway, and then out on the in the big house on the porch comes the sheriff who's just in this reverie, just kind of surveying the land with his cup of coffee. It's just that is a dichotomy where she's so frantically trying to escape and he's just sort of easing mm, his way into still. the morning as though there isn't a woman being held, you know, captive in the nearby cabin. I just thought that was really interesting. And then we find out the governor is not returning his calls. Gator is missing. And he knows that the winds have changed. And he says he's ready for war. And the best part about this section, he admits that he loves her or yes. loved her. And in that his way. In his as much as he could. And that that made him weak. And it made him yes. make all of these stupid decisions. And and he'd rather her die than ever feel that away, that again. I think that's a really interesting thing to say so, so he said the most i ever felt was for that woman and so he has to admit to himself his own failure that he's bitten off more than he can chew with dot in trying to get her back and that even though she's in that hut and even though he's beat the shit out of her like the zingers that she threw at him when she, after she got the beating it's like she's already beaten him she's already won and there's no way he'd, uh, short of killing her he can't beat her he can't defeat her and so he has to do the same as what he did with linda and kill her and But having made the decision, he just says to Bowman, bury her, and just walks away. Like, he's done, out of there. And because he, he couldn't stand to see her again because he, would, he didn't want to see her looking at him and seeing on his face the failure. It would be too mortifying, and we know how much he hates to be ridiculed. And when he says to Bowman, the tide has turned, dig in, this is our Masada. Now, I had to pause there because I know that Masada was a thing, but I was not exactly sure what it was. And there's a lot more Jewish people in America, and maybe it's more of a, a common thing. But Masada was a famous battle where the Jewish rebels were being besieged by the Romans, 
and rather than face, there was 2,000 of them, I think, and rather than face a lifetime of slavery and abuse, the entire fortress in Masada, 2,000 Jewish fighters, seeing that they were going to be overtaken by the Romans, took their own lives. So it's a symbol of Israel's staunch determination to remain free. And for Roy, that is so important, right? He'd rather die in a blaze of glory than be taken over. And so once I read that history, I'm like, that makes total sense. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. But when I looked at his henchman, the guy who's been like his lead. Bowman, yeah. Yeah, Bowman all along. Maybe it's because this actor is African-American. That, and I so associate these militias with being white supremacy or, or whatever, that I keep wondering, why are you there? I mean, I understand if you want to be the right-hand man and it's money and it's power and stuff. I don't get the sense that he's a true believer. It's like he works mm-hmm. for the most powerful man in this country. He gets his power through him and money through him. But like the true believer, the fanatic that would that you'd have to be in order to sacrifice yourself. I just I just don't get it. I get that the the father-in-law and I get that the daughter, you know, his wife, number three, are fanatics. Mm. There's something missing to this story. I don't get why he is at his beck and call. It doesn't feel they haven't established that this community, what this community gets from this. I mean, yeah, we see everybody, you know, riding their horses and all this stuff, but we just don't have a sense. And that that's what was so clear about season four is that how dug in all of those families are. Every single member of the family has something to gain, has something to lose, has a vested interest, has a loyalty or a backstabbiness or something or a betrayal. I mean, all of the people around him just feel very unconnected to me. But anyway. I don't know. It's it. I think it's enough to allude to the fact like, okay, I'm, I'm an Australian, so I'm not soaked in the US media and all that sort of stuff. But I have seen you know, black slash African-American people who are big supporters of the far right. And I'm thinking, how does that work? Do you really think that these, these people, do they really embrace you as a black person in there? Or are you window dressing to say, Hey, you know, Hey, we we tolerate all sort of people. I don't know. It's it's outside of my realm, but anyway, I was happy to just go, Oh yeah. Okay. He's one of those guys that's sort of is in tune with what Roy's doing in spite of his lineage or his history or his race and whatever. I don't know. I was happy to just sort of go, it's a faint connection, but I'll just roll with it anyway. Yeah. All right. So then we flip over to, again, I really love this this skyline that they have here in the mm. clouds with, with Lorraine in her office, once again, looking out big windows. She's always around big windows. And it's that really foggy, misty, smokestacky looking texture outside. I just absolutely love it. And of course, she's really concerned because she can't get a hold of Danish. She's really frustrated. And I just love that. She, what did she say? Wait, is this the scene where no, she she's, says it? She's just dialing. She's dialing over and over again. And it's, oh, uh, no. Again, we come back to this theme of, like she said when to him, I mentioned in the last episode, you know, when she says, gas up the Porsche, Porsche, you're going to North Dakota. And she slips her arm in his and it's this very tender moment between them. And I read somewhere, somebody said, what if Wayne is not the son of Wink, but the son of Danish? No. Like, I, why do we no, always have yeah, to do I that? Know. We always have to get I the know. soap opera I know. It has it's like, to be this typical trope but, of the but, soap opera baby. I mean, no, it's just that they are connected through all, you know, the way the powerful people are. My first reaction was, oh, yeah. And I went, no, Wayne is a total clone of Wink. Not a clone, but he's more like Wink than Danish, right? So I don't think that's the case. But anyway... Yeah, anyway, but as you say, it's a great scene. Indira is looking sharp, right? Yes. She is dressed. She's she comes like she's striding in, in her Yes. No more wrinkled uniforms for her. But anyway, and just when Lorraine's trying to call Danish over and over, I'm just like. I know. But I love that line. You probably wrote it down too, where she's just called that orange idiot. Yes. It can only Indira be one person says, she's talking about. She says, Indira says, shall I call the governor? And Lorraine says, no, I'm done fucking around. Tell Jerome to call the orange idiot. It's time I got something for my money. She's a billionaire. She's probably been donating to both sides of the political spectrum because like you never know where you're going to need your favor to come from. But yeah, that was a great scene. So I guess we're supposed to imply from that that she's pulling strings to have the FBI go out there. And so Indira is giving Trooper Wit the heads up that the cavalry is coming and she's very concerned. She wants to make sure that 
he looks out for Dot so she's not caught in any kind of weird crossfire and doesn't get used as a hostage and all that stuff. I have to say, again, with the music, when they cut from Indira and Lorraine in the office and it's, you know, it's some wide shots and all this sort of stuff. They've got this drum. It's like a military Yeah, so we should starting. be getting more tense, right? We should be feeling like the things are coming, people are coming unhinged and this is it, right? Here, neither these people like this is their Alamo. They've been waiting for this. There's just something off about it for me. The next scene we have is Sheriff Tillman. I think that the next scene is he's addressing the he's on his live stream addressing the troops Mm -hmm. like, all right, this is it, brothers. You know, let's call to arms. This is supposed to be like the Henry V speech. You know, what's that? What's it called? It's got it's called a famous Uh, thing. Band of Brothers? No, it's the one that Kenneth Branagh. It's like a famous Shakespearean speech where I mean, made famous by Kenneth Branagh in Henry V or just you're rousing the troops to go fight the French, you know, or something. And that there's an emotion to it. I thought it was that one. We few. We band of we band of brothers. We, we, this, uh, we uh, this, uh, yes. I took that. I took that to be intentional. Ham and Noah and uh, Ezekar. It's so good. I think this was meant for him to be stiff. He's sitting on his desk, right? And it's unintentionally self-parody, right? Mm-hmm. He says, "Mayday!" You know, well, well, he doesn't say "Mayday," but it is his "Mayday." He says, ten double zero, officer down. Bring your beans, bullets, and big fucking hammers." So it's his plea to the patriots, and he says. After they murder me, they're coming for you next. It sounds like a Trumpian kind of a kind of thing, which has been a theme throughout the whole sort of series, really. It's been subtle until now, but it's no longer. So he's calling on all of his lemmings to follow him off the cliff. And what was what struck me about this scene was he finishes off, it's supposed to be a Marine, hurrah, but it comes out as he says, hua, like Colonel Frank Slade in Incent of a Woman. But the thing about it, he delivers it. He doesn't go, he's, it's really downbeat, Yeah, you know, and it's, it's, he sounds almost already defeated. It's just, he's putting up a front of yeah, bravery yeah. and success. And I think that was intentional the way that he played it. Maybe yeah, I'm... I guess maybe it was intentional, but it was very flat to me and yes. it made me not interested in what it, 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 it broke the tension. It didn't build to anything like. He should either be getting the adrenaline needs to be at an all time high, right? He's either right. should be becoming even more obsessive, you know, Colonel Kurtz or whatever. You know, it's St. Crispin's yep. Day, by the way. What I'm trying to think of St. Crispin's Day. It's oh, okay. Speech is or unhinged or something, but he just seems to be not a, not at all interested in what he's even saying. I just it just doesn't but, but feel doesn't, but doesn't so that doesn't talk to you or doesn't speak to you about how beaten down he actually is underneath. He can't summon that rage. That's what I read it as. Just, he doesn't have the stomach for the fight. Like he's going to go down swinging, but he's not. Think about him like in the uh, the first episodes. I just read that as being the emblematic of his slow decline over the sort of arc of the series. And by the way, folks, if you want a good giggle at the end of the live stream, so if you he walks off camera, and there's a close-up of the computer screen, and it says live stream ended. And if you freeze it there, or if you take a screenshot and you zoom in, down the right-hand side, there's a whole bunch of comments. If right, I was wondering the comments, what this was. Absolutely fucking hilarious. Yeah, right. just do it. Anyway. What, I was, what I'm getting at is when he murders Danish, that scene, think about how contained that room felt. Think about how intense it was, how he was this cornered, animal. I mean, mm-hmm. that was a thrilling scene. But now that we're, but so where is that guy? You know, where is the guy? Is he either needs to be losing his marbles and being over the top Bible thumping like this is it, the end of days, here we go. Or if he's depressing, if he's decomposing or de- decompensating, I'm just not seeing anything. I don't buy that this is just this genius directing move or anything. I just... It just feels phoned in to me. I, it doesn't feel intense whatsoever to me. But mm-hmm. And it's so disappointing based on where, how we saw him last. He could be haggard. He could be upset. He could be losing it. He could be, he's losing control, right? And yet he just seems so sedate and passive and calm. I'm just not seeing anything. I'm not seeing either that high of adrenaline, that terror that he's going to lose. He's about, he is losing everything. There's no way that he's going to win. No. He, and no. he basically says, I know, this, he is like a su- this is a suicide mission. 
So unless you're telling me he's at that sort of calm, peaceful state where nothing's going to matter, maybe he's in a kind of shock. I don't know. But for me, it just it didn't play. Did not play. Yeah, it, it, it did for me. And I wonder if you, you trust the journey. I think after the next step, you might not feel this way. I think at the moment he's kind of in denial and I'm happy mm -hmm. for me to consider that he's in this place where he's not quite accepting the shit that he's in and he's not, he kind of knows that it's going to happen, but he's not really accepting that it's going to happen. And so he's in this weird denial. Everything's going to be fine. Like when later on, we'll talk about Odin says to him about the Reichstag thing. And he just says, oh, tell your boys the sandwiches, you know, in, inside the house. He's disassociating. And I think this is an early part of that. But anyway, we shall see. Is this the part where we have YMCA playing? Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> Again, this is my point. It's you were, we need to be gathering drama, gathering tension, and then you undercut it with this very jokey song. So it makes, I wasn't sure, am I supposed to see this as absurd? It's completely absurd that they're gathering the troops, but okay, so it's absurd. So I shouldn't take it seriously. I'm completely confused at the tone of what they're trying to do in this section. When the song first came on, I burst out laughing because I figured it was they were undercutting these macho, you know, rednecks mm -hmm. yeah. with AR-15s, blah, 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 with the most, perhaps the most emblematic gay icon <laughs> of all time. Right. And of course, you know, there, there's one dressed as a cowboy and there's one dressed as a cop and, mm -hmm. you know, it is all this stuff. And I'm like, oh yeah, they're just taking the piss out of these sort of Oath Keeper-esque macho rednecks. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh no, wait a minute, because I'm, I'm from Australia, so I'm not soaked in this, right? And I'm like, so I Googled, you know, YMCA Trump, because we've already heard about the orange idiot. And of course, it's one of his key campaign songs. Really? He dances to it. Oh, yeah. Really? Every time. Every, I have no idea. I've never closes, seen one. He <laughs> closes the show with that song. And so it's a little mistake from Noah, oh right? Oh, my God. That's great. And then, so Noah's sort of taken the gloves off in terms of being very explicit about what he's doing with this one, with this series. Okay. And then, of course, Roy says, they're coming for me like they did Amon and Lavoie. And of course, I had no idea what that was. So I had to Google Me either. Lavoie. So two Nevada militants, Lavoie Finnicum and Eamon Bundy, were that they sort of blocked off the road and they wouldn't pay their taxes and they wouldn't do this. They wouldn't do that, one of those militants. And Lavoie ended up getting shot and Eamon Bundy was arrested but got a mistrial. And so he's still out there. But that was basically, if you believe that sort of right-wing narrative, they were victimized by the mm -hmm. deep state. Sort of thing. So he says, they're coming for me like they did for Eamon and Lavoie and, and, and they'll come for you next. So that was. Yeah, I was surprised that he didn't reference Waco, but maybe, uh, you know, that would be the, you know, that's usually what gets referenced. All righty. So we have our girl Dot. She figures out how to get out and scampers to the house. And I do love that she knows. I just got the sense. And this was, this was really wonderful that she knows that house really well. And she knows all the hiding places and she knows how to make herself disappear because as an abused woman, you probably mm. wanted to disappear so many times and hide wherever you could when you could. So I do, I did really get that his, that sense of history as she's going through the house. And especially when she walks into the primary bedroom and probably a lot of the memories that are there. And you know that she's yeah. going to get caught, obviously. She tries to make that phone call and you get that sweet little scene with her and Wayne and Scotty and they're getting their groceries and, you know, she's talking to them. But I just keep thinking, just tell them where you are. Talk faster. Do something. I mean, you know, I, I get really frustrated with just the basic physics of things. Do you have thoughts about that? Yeah. So is that called, is that called a coal scuttle where she goes through that sort of, you know, she lifts up, she's outside the house and she lifts up that sort of horizontal gate thing. And she goes, is that a coal scuttle or a timber? It's a, it's a cellar. Like, we call it a cellar door. So it just leads to the cellar. To cellar the door. Okay. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Cellar door. Mm -hmm. So she goes into the cellar door and she's, okay. But I'm assuming it's there because you would throw wood or coal or something down there. And no, it's to... just, no, it's probably, if, if it, it could be a tornado shelter or oh, it's okay. just where, it's just where you store like dry goods and your pickling stuff and your yep. preserves and stuff like that. Okay. We don't have them yet. Anyway, but she gets in there and then she goes upstairs to the bedroom because she knows, of course, the, as you say, she knows the house so well and she knows that there's a phone beside the bed. But yeah, like you, I'm like, she's sitting there hunched down with her back to the door. It's like a horror, like the cheapest horror movie of all time. And so Karen comes in 
with a fresh black eye and threatens to shoot Dot with this old bolt action rifle. She's in the middle of speaking to Wayne and Karen says, I put the phone down and she does. And then Wayne, of course, hits, is it in the US, is it Star 69? Is that that Recall? (laughs) Yes, Star 69. Yeah. Yeah. I know that from movies. So Wayne Star 69's Dot, but Karen won't let her pick up. And Karen is, and then this thing that I just went, I had to stop it and rewind and go, did I just hear what I thought I heard? The fact that Roy has left the bedroom in the state that it was when Dot left. So there's Dot's photos. And even I was like, this can't be right. Karen said, he refuses to let me change the sheets. We're sleeping in your filth. I'm like, what? Oh my God. That is just. I didn't know if it was literal. She was being literal or she just meant he won't let me get rid of anything. And I'm just wondering, I don't quite understand why she's an abomination. I don't get it. I don't understand why that Karen keeps saying that Dot is an abomination. I mean, what is the transgression? She ran away from her husband, but that's good for Karen. I mean, what's the alternative? Yeah, but she's back. She's back. That's the problem. She's but it's not her fault. She doesn't want to be back. But Roy pursued Dot and brought her back. So Karen's like, oh, so you would rather get your wife from 10 years ago than me. And I do the naughty nurse and I do the this and right, I do everything. She's not mad at him. She's mad at, at Dot. Yes, I know. This was, I, don't know. I read something about this where they were going, in, 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 we've seen supportive women for Dot throughout the series. And now you've got Karen, who is not supportive at all, slapped her upside the face. She's hostile to Dot. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. she sees her as a threat. Now, whether that's because Karen's been damaged or because, like, as I said in the last episode, Third time's the charm, said Dr. Roy. You finally found one that matches your level of, you know, whatever. Now, when you see her dad, Odin, Karen's dad, Odin, it's like she had no, no chance from birth. Okay. But, I mean, I get you know. the jealousy. I get that if she feels that Roy, this is the one woman that he ever really loved and is obsessed with mm-hmm. and can't get over, then I can see, you know, her anger and resentment. But it's just interesting, the language that she has used, that, that she's an abomination and an albatross like she's the albatross or anything it's just interesting to me like i wasn't sure like what was the transgression that dot had done i mean is it is it a sin to to run away from your husband i don't you know i don't know but Mm. yeah that was interesting that you see it's not explained but you see that karen has had her face beaten in as we sort of thought would happen because she was so mouthy in the car Mm. and that he's going to take it out on her but and again, do we really think that Dot Dot tries to sort of convert Karen, right? And say, you know that he's weak. You're never going to have to be afraid of him again. Your girls aren't going to be afraid of him again. As though she could possibly convince this woman to be on her side, you know? It was believable. No, really? no, I'd say, yeah, yeah, she's got the gun on her. It's like, how do I get out of this? First, I'll try and talk my way out. Yeah, that's And so let's appeal to her, Karen's, like, deepest innermost feelings. Surely she loves her kids more than she cares for Roy, right? I think she hates Dot because as bad as the relationship is with Roy, at least he's her husband, right? He's America's mm-hmm. sheriff. Because she's been indoctrinated by her dad, Odin, who's clearly a psycho. In her world, that she at least has some measure of status because of that. And that's why yeah. she was so angry at the debate when he was being ridiculed. And yeah. as I said last night, they cut away to her. And she was fucking furious because by implication, when he gets taken down, she gets taken down. And for better or worse, she's married to him. Mm-hmm. So in her mind, it's this is better than nothing. Yeah. Sort of. And yeah, anyway. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, just so she, Karen shapes to shoot Dot at the end of that. And then Dot knocks the barrel of the rifle away, grabs the rifle and just clocks Karen across the side of the head and knocks her out. And she steals downstairs on the way out. She just decides. <laughs> But she's going to turn on all the gas all right, of the stove. So she flips on all the gas burners and runs out of the house. And then five minutes or two minutes later, Roy walks in. And just as one of his knucklehead patriots is trying to light his cigarette, <laughs> Roy slaps the cigarette lighter out of his hand and goes, are you stupid? Can you not smell this? Right. And goes and runs and turns off all the gas and then looks at him and, and basically says, you've all been asleep at the wheel. She's been here and she's gone. So right. now we know. So this is the clunkiness that started to kind of get on my nerves. So yeah, so that happens. 
He goes upstairs, gun drawn, as though Dot might still be there when he's already said she's gone. But he so he goes up the stairs as though he's trying to clear, see if she's there. He sees his wife knocked out. And then he still continues to search as though Dot might still be hiding on the second floor. And I was like, oh, why is he doing that? We know that she's gone. So he keeps going. And the only reason that he does that when he goes into Gator's room and quickly, is she behind this door? Is she behind that door? And then he goes into the closet and sees the money. And I'm like, that is such a clunky way to get him to discover the money because we mm. know already, he knows she's not anywhere near that house. And I'm like, come on, what? You know what I mean? It's just such a, mm. it's just an obvious, I don't know. I just started to kind of lose faith in the structure. Well, keep the faith, Lise. Keep of, the faith, of baby. this episode. Anyway. Keep the faith. Yeah. Yes, you're right. There's a clunkiness to the actual reality of that. But the fact that he's there and he's clearing the upstairs and he just glances at her as, oh yeah, wife knocked out. And then just keeps moving as if she was already dead. Like, again, that's how cold he is. And finding the money, I think was important because he says, Jesus, kid, what the fuck did you do? So now he knows that Gator's stole the money back from Munch and he looks concerned, but not because he's concerned about Gator, but because of the pain in the ass factor that's going to cause him because he knows that he's not going to be happy. So we have a, a brief little glimpse of Gator. Is we, now we see what has happened to him. He's had his eyes gouged out, which is awful. And he's being led through the snow by Ole, marched back home in disgrace in a way. Hmm. No uh, dialogue, by the way. So it is a different scene. But all we see is Ole leading Gator across the tundra mm -hmm. with this rope around his neck. And then likewise, we also have a, a dialogue-free scene where we have the FBI with their tanks arriving. So take it from there, Bob. I mean, the next thing I have is Dot calling Lorraine to tell her where she, or actually she calls Indira to tell her where she is. And then Lorraine gets on the phone. And that was a lovely mm. moment when... Yeah. Dot lets her know, lets Lorraine know that Danish is dead. And the way that Jennifer Jason Lee just takes in that information, mm -hmm. I thought was all kinds of amazing and completely in her character. Yes. It's devastating her, but she's not going to just. I, yeah. I think both, I'll talk more later about Ham's facial acting without dialogue. But this particular scene, right? So as you say, by the way, it opens up with her on the, with Lorraine on the phone. She says, What's the point of being a billionaire if I can't have somebody killed? And I'll bet that's not the first time some billionaire said that to somebody, some rich right. And when she gets on the phone and she gets on the dot, and the first thing she says is, have you seen Danish? Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, it struck me even right in the moment, Dot just said, killed. Like, she didn't put it in a sentence. She did it like monk, monk mm. right? Where he, he just says one word, and we'll talk about that later. There's another word that he drops when he brings Gator back to Roy. But she just says, and then you get this medium close-up on, on Lorraine. And as you said, you just see the just underneath the emotions going through as she's processing the fact that, that he's dead. And then she says to Dot, are you safe? And Dot says, yes, but like a fish on the floor. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. Then she goes, okay, like standby help is on the way. And Dot says, why help now? And Lorraine tries to deflect. From that, she goes, ah, oh, because this busybody made me do it, talking about, but Dot won't let her off the hook. And she says, no, I need to know. And then Lorraine drops all the pretense and says, because no daughter of mine is going down on the one yard line, put your big girl pants on, get in the fight. And Dot tears up because it's clear that um, Lorraine is speaking from the heart. And of course, Indira snatches the phone and do not get in the fight, <laughs> Lauren Forsman had on. But yeah, that was a fantastic scene. And you got to understand that in spite of Lorraine being a monster in some ways, do not fuck with her family. And once she decides yeah. your family, you're in. Like you're in or you're out. Yeah. Yeah. So, I just thought it was a great moment without it being overly emotional. But right. anyway, so then Dot is left to, again, just zip around trying to find a place to hide while the gathering forces in the front of the property, all of these different law enforcement agencies are throwing it up and trying to decide who's going to do what and all the tactical stuff. I love this. I actually really loved the casting of the head of the FBI tactical team. I mm -hmm. thought he was really cool. His height, his look, clean, tight, yep. haircut, all that stuff. And the way that he bolstered around and took things in hand and had a face, you know, had his face to face with John Hamm. I mean, we, we didn't, we're not getting to that yet, but, you know, I, I do, yep. I did. You know, it's fine, but it just feels like it's taking forever for me. It's just, okay, oh, really? the FBI show up and then they have to talk and then 
Trooper Witt shows up and he has to talk. It just felt like everybody waiting around assessing their positions and that's fine. But for me, it's okay, come on, let's go less. Let's concentrate. Let's get it together. It just felt like just a lot of waiting and looking across the horizon at each other. Oh, so the thing that struck me about this scene was that you've got the, the head of the FBI, you've got the SWAT guy right beside him. You've got wit, you've got all these people, and they're all within, I don't know, five meters of each other, like 20 feet, and they're all got guns drawn. They're all pretty chill. They're, they're all talking. They're not, there's no hint of that things are going to go berserk any minute. And I just thought mm-hmm. that was so weird. Yeah, yeah anyway. exactly. That's what I'm saying. That's, uh, so did I. Oh, we didn't say what this title was, The Useless Hand. Ah, oh, The Useless Hand, yes. I, now, uh... you know that I've been obsessed by the names of the episodes throughout. And I think this is the most explicit, surely the most explicit episode title ever, because Ole gives an exposition of exactly why this is called The Useless Hand. And mm, The Useless mm-hmm, Hand is, mm-hmm. is, is, of, is, of course, sadly, poor old Gator. Yeah, we didn't. Oh, so getting back to Blanket, nobody knew what Blanket was. But so what the right. hell is Blanket? She's got a blanket over her thing, blah, blah, blah. So I did read online, somebody said, my brother is a prison guard and the term blanket, what is used when the guards decide they're going to burst open the cell and give the prisoner an absolute shellacking. Oh, wow. It's called, we're going to go and give this guy a blanket. And so that's, of course, what Roy does to, to Dot when he comes back from the debate and walks into the infamous tracking shot. When he walks to the to the hut and she says, what are you doing? And then he beats the crap out of her. So that's what's called a blanket. Yeah. So then Indira phones Wit and says, it's going down. you got to get Dot out. And so we see the FBI and the SWAT team strategizing about how to handle this standoff. And then Buckholt says to Wit, okay, you can coordinate with the intrusion team to get her. And then we cut to this amazing scene between Karen's dad, Odin, and Roy standing yeah. outside the main house. Do you want to take it from there or do you want me to keep it? No, going? I had no interest in that scene. So go ahead. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, sexogenous re- having a nice little scene together. No, thanks. I don't, I mean, I get no. it. Go ahead. Okay, go for it. No, I disagree. This is a key turning point, right? So if you look back to where Roy, at the start of the series, Roy was omnipotent, mm-hmm. okay? When, for example, anything he did, he was fucking untouchable and no mm-hmm. one questioned him. Mm-hmm. And now here you've got Odin saying to him, he's, he goes, are we Hitler at the Reichstag or we or are we Hitler in the bunker? First of all, mm. we're bringing in a Hitler reference, right? Which yeah, is, right, right. Which is such, it's like every time you bring up Hitler, you lose an argument, right? Yeah, so, as the hero, no less. <laughs> exactly. So he says, are you at the Reichstag, which is the start of the revolution, or are you in the bunker when you blow your brains out? And he said, I'm asking, says Odin. And of course he said, are we first days or last days? And then of course the next sequence in that is end of days. And we know that Tillman is all up for the apocalypse, right? No, I'm going to agree with you because based on that, if his father-in-law is asking him, are we first days or are we end of days, that suggests an ambivalence on the part of Roy, that he's not quite one or the other, which is what I've been complaining about in the beginning of the episode where he seemed so passive. And it seems like his father-in-law is also speaking to that. Are Is this, are we charging in or are we actually... Are we charging over the cliff? Is this a Butch and Sundance moment? Or is what, mm, yeah. what is this? What is going on? So he seems as confused as I am. I think he and I are both confused by. Yeah, but yeah, but no, but again, that's consistent with what I said before that Roy's yeah. in this transitional period where he, underneath, he understands that his time is done, but he doesn't want to admit it. So he's putting on a bit of a front that things are going to be okay. Go and eat your sandwiches. And he tells patriots that are on their way, we'll hold the front and you come and get them from behind or whatever the hell he says. But he knows that he's going to get taken down, right? And so I just want to say that it struck me watching this episode, Hawley and Ham have done a great job of slow-mo, slow-moing, if that's not even a word, the decline of Roy. And so again, I've just mentioned the fact that at the start he was on that scene where he, in the diner, where he's counseling the Mm -hmm. couple. The, the young, the, the guy that's beating his wife. And he says to the, he says to the guy, you can't keep doing this, but he says to the wife, but on the other hand, you've got to be, fulfill the roles and do the thing. So you've got a guy be a young guy being counseled not to beat his wife by the worst wife beater in the county, but he's untouchable. He's fucking yeah. untouchable. And everything he touches turns to gold. And it's not like he reached a certain point and the 
the switch flipped, what we've seen is this really slow decline of Roy becoming less powerful, more questioned, more fallible, more self-doubting, and it's happened in slow motion. And the the acting from Ham has been incredible, but also the direction and the writing by Noah, it's like a slow motion train wreck. And I just think it is absolutely unbelievable. And it's so subtle, right? So even the look on Ham's face when he takes that long walk from the car to the hut to beat her after Karen winds him up about she's an albatross and all sort of thing. It's just, he acts with his face so well and so does Juno. So the two of them, they can say, but they can do fucking pages of dialogue just by their face. And that's what I think. Is I agree so with you, but I note that what you're talking about just now happened in the last episode, not in this episode. So that intensity, that's what I'm missing in this in this episode is that intensity Mm. anyway it's lacking for me clearly not for you but anyway i mean this is not a guy i mean looking at him this is not a guy that anybody is going to go to battle for i just don't feel that i just don't feel that he's rallied the troops enough that he's somebody that people are gonna ride or die with but anyway yeah but they don't do it in the moment they do it based on his like social media profile his his history they're not doing it because he asked it like right now they're doing it because he's roy fucking Mm -hmm. tillman and he's America's sheriff, and they know him as that. And in real life, you can do something bad in public life. It doesn't, rep- you know, the repercussions don't come for six months or three months, maybe. And so I think he's still living off his, his, cash his, his reputation. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. So up comes a moment that made me really realize what I was missing. So we have Tillman, everybody, he's rallying the troops, and he's taking one last chance of t- trying to find where Dot is. He knows that she's loose on the property somewhere, so he's, he goes one way. And then his henchmen go the other way. And he goes into this really strange structure. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe some kind of root cellar that has like a tunnel. And he goes in and there's this moment that we haven't had since the beginning of the series. This crossfade, really creepy moment where he comes into this structure and there's something on the ground. It looks like a carcass of some kind. I don't know what that was. But superimposed over it is Ole's face and this sort of flashback to a spell and i and it's just this really creepy moment in the dark inside this structure and i was like oh i miss that i miss those moments in the beginning of the series where there was such a creep factor and such a there's something going on that's supernatural just under the skin and that was a moment for me that i reminded me of what i was missing about this episode i guess yeah and when he walks out he said I'll leave the light on just in case. And I must confess, I don't understand what that meant. Just in case he needs it. Just in case Doc goes there. Just in case, I don't know. I don't know what that means. Or oh, did you get it, Lisa? I was wondering if it had something to do with something called a ghost light. And that's a theater reference where you always leave a light on stage. It's called the ghost light. And it's really mainly so that nobody trips and kills themselves and falls into the orchestra pit. Mm. But it's also for the ghosts in the theater to be able to see. And I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure what it was, but what was that thing on the ground? Does anybody reference that in anything oh, you've read? I don't know. I was I couldn't work out what it was. And I haven't, in the short time since the episode dropped, I haven't seen what it is. This That sequence mystified me. And I have to admit, I really don't understand what that was about, even though right. parts I do, I'm like, okay. Because he sent Bowman to the tank and he said, I'll check out the, what was it called? The, the dugout? dugout. I think yeah. he said dugout. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I mystery. think you're right. Yeah. Anyway, so he comes out of the dugout and there in the mist stands his blinded son, like Oedipus and, oh. and Ole. Wait, wait, hang on. Oh. Wait, wait, yeah. wait. Easy, wait. Tiger. Easy. Before that is the, the scene where he rides out on the horse and confronts the feds. Oh, before that? Okay, sorry. Oh, yeah. So he gets on his horse exactly. and he flip-clops out past his militia guys. And I forgot to say that when the YMCA track was playing and the, all the militias turning up, they cut visually to dots, as you said, scurrying around and she finds her way down the coal scuttle. But if you go back and look at it, it's beautiful audio editing because it goes from this bouncy YMCA track mm-hmm. and then there's just a slow fade into this really ominous music as Dot's trying to find her way in. You almost don't even notice it's happening, but I do. I do. Of course you did. I'm a bit OCD but in that way. <laughs> and I'm, I had to replay it going, fuck, you can't even tell when that starts and when it finishes. It's just beautiful. And likewise, he, Roy, gets on his horse. 
and he goes out to confront the feds, the SWAT and the FBI and wit. And there's this, I think it's a bassoon that's playing mm. and fuck me if it's not basically the, the soundtrack of the shining. Oh, really? So, oh, it's so ominous. It is absolutely and utterly ominous. And I'm going, oh, we're going to get gunplay any second. Anyway, it didn't happen. But then we get this interchange between the, uh, as we've already flagged, the C, the special agent in charge and the um, SWAT commander. And he says, we're here to do blah, blah. And Ham says, I don't recognize your authority, which is, of course, the standard thing. Mm. By the way, we're getting that in Australia now. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. They don't want to pay taxes. They don't want to. Uh, anyway. So then Agent Meyer says something and Ham says, Mrs. Mrs. Joe Quinn, having his little slam from earlier on. And then she clarifies the meaning of the term witch hunt. She says, you know what a witch hunt is, right? That's not witches hunting men, but men killing women to keep them in line. And so that should be a snap moment. But Roy is just absolutely yeah. imp and imperious. But to me, he also looked fatalistic, almost resigned to his fate. And this gets mm -hmm. back to your comment about him being neither here nor there. Mm -hmm. I think he's still processing it. He, he knows that his time is up and he gives that speech that says, for you guys, you're just on your way to Starbucks to get a coffee. He goes, for me, this is the path I'm on. And he says in his big voice, his big daddy voice, he goes, God cuts our name into bone. And that's what he becomes. He blows his holy trumpet and the walls fall down. So this is a, a reference. I'm not religious, but I recognize Jericho and the trumpet and whatever. So I looked it up and this is Joshua 6.20. Quote, when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, they raised the great shout and the wall of Jericho fell down so that the sons of Israel went up into the city, every man straight ahead, climbing over the rubble and they overthrew the city. So we get, apart from Masada, we get another biblical Israel reference, that fundamentalism that just comes through and then he turns his hawk. And he click plops off and says, all right, let's get this thing on. And so he's clearly ready for an apocalypse. I'm like, uh, it's going to come too. Yeah, I still feel okay and ready, set, go. I, like, I just felt like waiting for this. And again, I felt like we were just diffusing tension constantly. I kept thinking, is somebody going to get shot? Not that I want somebody to get shot, but, you know, it's like, I, I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. It's definitely biding yeah. its time. And it's just for me, just not adding it to anything. Okay. So I think, I, I think the pace of 10 is going to be insane. I, I think that this was an intent, like in music where you've got, you know, it's ebb and flow, right? You can't have something, you can't have like no, I get music it. the same level. And I think that nine was a setup. And I think that 10 is going to be absolutely full noise. Anyway. Okay. Explain second. to uh, me uh, this. Sorry. Explain to me this, Obi-Wan. Mm. Why? Explain, okay. I will. Out of all the places Doc could have hidden, she mm. decides to go hide in the mass grave, I guess, right? Which is the first place that they think to look for her, by the way. But anyway, so she goes down there. Why doesn't she bring her fucking gun? This Why? Is, this has set the internet on fire, right? She dumps the gun. And everyone's going, why the fuck would she dump the gun? And some people have said then, but then later Ollie uses it to save her. But she doesn't know that when she goes down. I He doesn't use that it, gun it, to I, save her. He, the guy picks up her gun. The henchman picks up her gun. How do you know? It's off camera. Well, I, she, he sees her gun sitting. That's, the, that's why I even noticed that she had not brought her gun with her into the tank. Because it's sitting there. Okay. And then we cut to okay, her so and she has a, a bone in her Why she would dump her gun. And she wasn't in such a hurry that she couldn't have grabbed it. And no, if she, she finally has it, a weapon after all. I know. Time. And when Bowman pushes the tank back and he sticks his head over the lip of the opening, that would be the perfect opportunity for her to line him up and just go pop. Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, so what was funny about this was that here you got the girl who refuses to die, and where does she hide herself? In a grave. Now, so, and are, and there's, I mean, are we supposed to think that's Danish's femur bone? I mean, or is that mm -hmm. just an old femur bone no, no, that's in there? No. When when she goes into the hole, you can see Danish's body there. We're covered with the lime or lye or whatever it is. And she looks up and she sees something hanging in midair and yeah, she's horrified by it. That was his eye patch. Oh, I couldn't tell what that was. Yeah, that covered was in necklace. blood. So there I didn't know what it was. Yeah. Blood, blood speckles. Uh, but as you say, she grabs this bone, which looks like a femur bone, and she's okay. ready to sort of defend herself. I think that's Linda's bone. I think. Whose ever bone it was, it looked absolutely ridiculous. 
I, yeah. I do love that it's Ole who saves her and she comes out and he sets her free in some ways. I think that was had a really nice symmetry to it. And it's the debt has been paid somehow. I don't know how, but. Yeah, this was clunky. Indira says, go and hide somewhere that they'll never expect you to hide. And then almost in the next scene, Roy says, she will expect, she will hide somewhere she never expects us to look. And of course it's that tank. And so we're back to the tank, but this is two episodes in a row where the leading characters who've been so smart have done two dumb things. Danish went to the compound to confront oh. Roy and now she's hiding in this place that, you know, that, that almost certainly that they're going to look because, you know, they think like she does and it's, you know, yeah, this bit to me didn't sort of make sense, but I mean, it's, to it's me, it feels like, like the scenes that are in close captivity in this season have been the best where people are forced to be concentrated in an environment that nobody can escape from or one mm. person can't escape from. That's okay. when it's the best. When okay, they're out so in this big ranch and they've got to have all these different plates spinning and all these different things, it's just not, for me, it's just not as clearly, it, it's not as satisfying. Okay. We do need to rewind a little bit because we've jumped forward because after she hides in the tank, we then go back, we cut to Ole bringing Gay through the right. mist and the fog and, and back to Roy, who pulls his weapon again. So this is another one that struck me. Roy says, what's going on with his eyes? And Gator just says, forfeit. Like one word, like the same word that Dot did about kill. Just that one word. And then Ole gives Roy the speech about watching on a deal. And when a man gives with one hand and takes with the other, he breaks his promise. And that Roy's broken his promise to Ole, even though it was Gator that did it, not him. And he says, quote, the hand must be taken from him, then returned, but now without function. And so now we, it's very explicit that Gator is the hand that's being returned. So Gator is literally the useless hand. And but so he always is, was useless. He always was useless. Oh, he could never he do was. anything right. Oh. I know, right? So it was, he was always putting on this facade, but yeah, everything he touched, like the initial you know, attack against Dot fucked up and everything that he did was turned to shit. And that little affirmation that he gave himself in his bedroom, in his parents' house, even though he's 30 or whatever, I'm a winner, I'm a winner, I'm a winner. No, you're not. Mm -hmm. You're a fucking loser. But the fact that somebody's turning up on Roy's property and has blinded his son, even though Roy doesn't care for his son, that's emblematic of the loss of authority and power and fear that Roy has. Who would dare to have done that in episode one? He'd fucking kill him, right? But not in this case, right? It's This is a guy on the downside. And so now we get to the sort of people who think Gator is the whole Gator redeemable thing. So there's Gator as a little boy. He's sobbing and crying and he's calling Roy daddy, not dad, but daddy. And it's, like I said, he's hard to like, but it's not hard to pity him because he everything he's done in his whole life has been to please Roy. He's trying to please Roy, like the wives try and please Roy, but they get smacked for it and as does gator when he earlier episode where he had his feet on the desk and he was talking tough and thinking he was you know like being the man that roy wanted him to be and roy just smacks his feet off the, off the top of the kitchen table and says whatever and roy says to him shut up like his son's just been blinded and he says shut up if ever there was a point to you it's gone now and he just walks off and leaves gator alone blinded in the mist in the cold in the snow like he is a fucking monster He's one of the great monsters of, of TV, don't you think? I guess. I guess. No? It's so cartoonish suddenly. It's so two-dimensional all of a sudden for me. He, he should be angry that somebody dared touch his boy, that his boy has been maimed and defiled this way. And there's a certain loss to that. But the fact that he's so cold, it, it, it left me cold. And also, did you get the feeling that Roy was going to shoot Gator? Put him out of his misery no, at some no, point. I was thinking me, but, that because but he, he could have. Yeah, I, I was thinking that you're not going to dangle my boy in front of me. I'd rather kill him myself than have mm. you do this to him. Like th some kind of honor killing or dishonor mm -hmm. killing. I think that would have had more pathos. But it's just sort of like, all right, bye. You know, I, there was no, because it didn't mean anything to Roy. It didn't have a punch to it. That, and that, I think that's what I'm saying. It's like. When something yeah, doesn't mean something to the other character, how am I supposed to be emotionally invested, you know? Yep. So anyway, right. clearly so, this episode was not for me, but, you know, it, no. did the thing, it put the people, it put the players 
where they need to be. Now yeah, let's put, see put the, where they put all the pieces, end up. Put the pieces on the board. So then we get the rescue of Dot beginning. So you've got the SWAT team sort of making their egress into Roy's compound and Wit stops them and says, listen, this chick, she's a bit crazy. You might find her with a knife. You might find her with a spray can and whatever, but please do not fucking shoot her. And so now we get to the scene where Bowman pulls back the tank and he looks down at her over the very, looking down the sights of the very gun that she dumped on the windmill and he lines her up to shoot her. And this is what I love about this scene. Dot bears her teeth and she growls like an animal. She's like, she knows she's cornered and she's going to die. And we get this literal flash picture of Scotty and Wayne. Right. So literally her life is flashing before her eyes and she's wielding that bone, which I think is Linda's and she's got to be toast, except just as Bowman's ready to shoot, you know, Bowman's ripped from her eyes and then, you know, lays waste to those couple of underlings. And then I thought it was funny when Monk says the tiger can come out now and Dot is terrified because she knows who it is and she thinks that he's there to kill her and it takes her a while to work out that he's not. So the funny thing was that he gives her a hand. He puts his hand down to help her climb the ladder. He's got the gun in his hand and he sort of spins it around. He's going to give it to her and she flinches like he's going to shoot her, but he's just giving it to her. But the way that she flinched, I thought was fantastic. And he says, now the tiger is free. Then he just disappears. As he does, we get the Allman brothers swelling over the soundtrack and the, the track is called Whipping Post. If you read the lyrics of Whipping Post, they could have been written for Roy about his relationship with Dot. So again, I just want to give a call out to Jeff Russo, the the musical director of the series, who from episode one has just done the most incredible job of not only doing the score, I assume, for this series, but also selecting the contemporary tracks, which have populated the series. So yeah, so there we are. Like the feds are, are ready to go full Waco on Roy's ass. Gator's out there somewhere. And as my friend Anthony said, who's going to get to, to Roy first? He's got four people that could fuck him up. It's there's the feds out the front. There's the incursion team that's coming in with wit. There's Dot and there's Ole. So who's going to? Well, I don't know. I think Ole has completely has finished his journey because if he was going to kill Tillman, he could have. He already had his confrontation when he gave him back Gator. So I feel like that's got a pin in it, or that's got a period at the end of it. You, know? you don't think he's going to appear in episode 10 at all? I, I don't know. It really felt like a goodbye. Like the tiger is free. Now go, you know, mm. he's leaving fate to her. She's leaving her to go exact whatever vengeance or what needs to happen. It, it, it feels like he's taken his eye for an eye. You know, otherwise he would have just killed Tillman when he had him in his sights. I mean, why not then? You know, what's. Uh, yeah, certainly when it, when he kicked, when he kicked uh, Gator onto Roy and. They fell down. He could have obviously jumped on Roy and, you know, ripped his throat. Yeah. Or, um, whatever so I so, think that's, the, but yeah, certainly other people are coming for, other people are coming for Roy, where we talked about this, people were coming for Dot in the beginning. And now that, that dynamic has completely flipped. So it'll be interesting the hunter to see. Has, the hunter has become the hunted. That's right. So, that's right, baby. Yeah, all right. Well, so we'll finish off. So there you go. I'm going to go with a prediction, Lisa, that it's not, I'm sure it's not a popular one. I don't like it, but I think Wit is going to make the ultimate sacrifice. I think he's going to die. I know, me too. He's, he's going to die protecting Dot because of his debt to her. I think that's what's going to happen. I think he's well, going to be I'm wrong. I hope I I'm wrong. I think the FBI agents are two favorite dynamic duo who I've come to like quite yes. a lot. I think something's going to happen to them. Yeah. And you know what? We may, maybe Wayne will make an appearance at the last minute and save I the day. I hope so. Yeah, I hope Me so. I don't, know about save, I don't know about saving the day, but the fact that the last episode is called Bizquick, which I now understand is like a pancake mix. Uh-huh. So surely there's going to be some kind of happy ending, but of course it's Fargo. It won't be that simple, but... Yes, Agents Meyer and uh, Joaquin, of course, we were lucky enough to interview Nick Gomez, uh, have been terrific. I don't know that they're going to die, but I think that Wit somehow will die. I know. Uh, you know, like oh. you think the bad guys usually get their just desserts in Fargo, but along the way, there's usually collateral damage. And yes. I'm thinking that, that this time it's going to be Wit as much oh, as I can. I know, me too. All right, we will see you next time on Killer Casting. Thank you all so much for joining us. And for now, this is Killer Casting, signing off. <laughs>